Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Just a heads up, this episode contains descriptions of racist actions. What are you looking at? um, The back of a t-shirt that said the Underground Railroad with musical notes and a circle of the um, Big Dipper and the Moon and Stars that say follow the drinking gourd, which is 123 Pleasant Street. After Marcia disappeared, D.L. packed away a box of ephemera. It's sort of like her personal archive of Marcia. D.L. hadn't gone through it in years. So on one of our trips down to West Virginia, we met up at a friend's cabin near our old farm in Braxton County. It was time to take a look at what was left. Inside, there's that old T-shirt, concert posters, and copies of the newsletters Marsha published over the years. <gasps> I thought I thought I had it. This is the she loved this. My dad did her corporate, corporate paper. Seal. Yeah, this is the corporate seal for the Underground Railroad. Yep. <laughs> it was also sometimes painful looking at Marsha's memory made tangible through a collection of papers and items. Especially now that we had discovered so much about her we had never expected. All right, D.L., how are you feeling about this uh, podcast thing? Well, that's a rough question to start about. Mm. I, I feel bad enough about this. You don't want me to hear about that You feel now. Oh, you feel bad enough about what? Revisiting all the Marsha stuff for as much as I am too, holding on to memories and holding on to shit that I shouldn't and being more sentimental than a lot of people I know. I mean, I've had a lot of ups and downs about this podcast, and some of the downs have been pretty, uh, ooh, should we be doing this? What D.L. was feeling in that moment is how we're feeling now. There have been a lot of ups and downs. Marsha had gotten to a really dark place. D.L. and I have always wanted Marsha's story to be more than just a drug deal gone wrong, or a dealer who went too far. Because for me, what's most meaningful about Marcia's story is what she left behind and the many ways she affected people. I get that for some, she left a wake of betrayal and devastation, and I don't want to minimize that. But she also loved deeply and empowered people to become their best selves. I'm Karen Zellermeyer. And I'm Janie Zellermeyer. This is I Was Never There, Episode 7. Yesterday, yesterday, 
We've talked to DL a lot throughout this reporting process, and she's kindly obliged and answered our endless questions and requests for help. Hey, how are y'all together? Oh, hold on, let me start my video. We just need to put you through the ringer one more time. <laughs> you know, let's just make this as torturous as possible, but you look nice. DL is also someone we've turned to to debrief, to decompress, really, because this whole process has been tough for all of us. You know, there had never been any closure, which is the hardest part of this. I started getting gray, you know, as soon as she disappeared. I mean, all of a sudden, when I turned 35, I don't know, it just really kind of stopped something. You know, I mean, it wasn't like arrested development. I went from... I could still do whatever I chose to do to, I don't know, just feeling like, wow, here I am. Just changed me. Marsha would not do this to me. Or I hope that Marsha would not do this to me. Because I had to think that in order to trust love and friendship. Because if I could be that close to someone and have them create such turmoil through intention and choice and to put people who loved her through that, that just couldn't be the reality for me. Marsha's disappearance shifted D.L.'s entire life. It threw her into a deep depression for a lot of years. It was hard to watch. D.L. was shattered. Shattered. Yeah, and then that's why it had to be something that was not intentional so that I could hold on to some level of trust. How long did this disappearance not just affect you emotionally, but For financially? almost exactly 10 years. Back in the early 80s, D.L. and her father helped Marsha buy the three buildings on Pleasant Street that housed both bars and the apartments above them. When Marsha disappeared, the bank was going to foreclose on the properties. So, at an auction on the steps of the Morgantown Courthouse, D.L.'s dad bought them outright. D.L. felt responsible for the debt, and she was committed to pay him back. To earn more money, she moved back to West Virginia from Baltimore to practice law. She also became the landlord of these buildings. The financial burden that this put on me, plus the responsibility of I am now dealing with three old buildings that were not maintained, that have the roughness of a live music bar with marginal people living in apartments above them. After several years of trying to maintain the buildings and keep the bar alive, she eventually sold them. Today, the bar is called 123 Pleasant Street. It's still a live music venue, and it has maintained a lot of the spirit of the underground. The whole experience caused D.L. a lot of grief. How could Marcia have left her with such a burden, with no plan? It seems selfish really unlike Marsha. The lack of closure has even shown up in D.L.'s dreams. And the 
most memorable dream of that was it was sort of a party atmosphere and it was outdoors and there was a fire and people were so thrilled to see her and I was furious and I was wanting to start screaming at her and people in a kind way pulled me away and said, you can't do this now, just let this be celebratory and you know, you all can deal with whatever you need to deal with at another time. Ugh, and I woke up sobbing. So I always had that window of possibility that maybe she would show up one of these days because she was, she always did in my dreams. Do you have any regrets? I guess I re regret not challenging her about the cocaine. I did try bringing it up a few times, but she would get very defensive because she did not want to be held accountable for whatever it was that was going on. Marta is just not something that I regret. So, I mean, mostly I just feel blessed. Oh, I just so loved her. Love is a big part of this story, and so is regret. It's something I felt so acutely when we talked with Joan Pransky and Phyllis Salo Kay, Marsha's friends from her New Jersey years. Back when we first started interviewing people, Joan asked me why no one tried to tell Marsha to stop with all the drugs. The truth is, I don't think I did enough. It's something that has haunted me. But it turns out some people did try to stop her. Well, one thing one of Marsha's fr oldest friends from New Jersey has said to my mom is, how come no one stopped her? No one could. I couldn't. I couldn't. I talked to the kids, her, the kids, her sons, uh, whom I can still see then. Of course, I see you as you were in, back then, too, but... We all talked to her. They begged. They came specifically into Morgantown. Her sons and her ex-husband, whom she always referred to as the love of her life, they came into Morgantown specifically to help do an intervention, to talk her out of this insanity. I mean, we were blown, our bow was blown up. To her dear friend who asked, why didn't anybody stop her? People tried. We tried. We really tried. But for whatever reason, even when her friend and business partner Michelle Mallott and Marcia's sons begged her to stop, Marcia wouldn't be deterred. She was proud of her outlaw persona. And as per the outlaw code, whenever we'd go to eat, Marcia would insist on a seat facing the door, and she'd tell me she had my back. If no seats with that view were open, she'd make the same quip. You got my back, right, Karen? I think the outlaw thing was meant to be playful, a quick sketch of what she stood for. But it cut both ways. The thing she was doing did hurt people, including the ones she loved the most. 
I still think being a mom to David and Michael was the biggest part of her identity, but she had so many other aspects that it was a, a smaller part of her whole being than it is for a lot of mothers. And I think that she was always really sad that David was with Sam and that she didn't have that. That's D.L. again. When Marcia and Sam split up, David went to live with Sam and Michael lived with Marcia in the Earth House. Marcia hated being separated from David. D.L. remembers Michael's confusion and disbelief when Marcia disappeared. It was when Michael said under his breath, when someone was talking about, oh, she's fine, she chose to do this. I mean, very quietly, but he was standing right beside me up in her office. He said, well, she could have called us. And when he said that, I just remember saying she would not do that to her kid. I mean, so she was that much of a mother that she would, you know, that she might put me through this, but she would not put Michael through this. And, and, and so that's what convinced me this is real and this was not something she chose to do uh, because she would not do this to her child. You haven't heard from Marsha's family in this series. We've been in contact with them, and they expressed interest in listening to what we produce. But they didn't want to be interviewed. They said it was all just too sad. I had always hoped that maybe the reason her family didn't want to talk is because they have heard from Marsha. Maybe she did call at some point in the past few decades. But we just don't know. Though it was sometimes at odds with her outlaw persona, being a mother was a big part of Marcia's identity. She was mom to Michael and David. She was ma to the dry house kids. And to many young women, she was a mentor. She taught them how to take care of their children and themselves. It's something a lot of women we spoke to never forgot, including Dana Perone. Good morning. I need to see you. Oh, morning. Wow. Evening. Why can't you see me? <laughs> what world are you? Why can't? What planet? Where, where? Where? Well, you've had a lot going on. Oh, there I am. Hi. Dana met Marcia because they were both selling drugs and running bars in Morgantown. While that may have brought them together, Marcia meant so much more to Dana. They met at a low point in Dana's life when she was in an abusive relationship. Marcia helped her realize she could make a change. She taught a lot of single moms a lot of things about being independent, about being able to take care of yourself and your kids. It was good things for me to learn. She made me understand that my relationship with Alexis, my little girl, was more important than anything. And that I was never, ever, no matter what, to leave her. And that's why I know something happened to her, because she taught me that. And she would have never left her own kids. We talked to Dana a few times during this project. 
Like Marcia, Dana's story is complicated. She also told us about being Marcia's cocaine connection and the drug-infused hot tub parties they had. In some cases, Marcia's outlaw persona and her concern for others bled into each other in potentially dangerous ways. Here's Teresa Ocasity. Some of the stuff I know, I, I fear that there's someone living still who could get in trouble from it or get a knock on the door. And it's the government going, yeah. And I'm going to tell you every single thing I know about it because it will, it will fill a thimble, but it's enough. Mm-hmm. It's enough to know. DL introduced us to Teresa. And after many emails and phone calls, we finally sat down and talked to her about this story she was nervous to tell. Just the three of us, DL. My, my sister's here, but they're gonna. I'm going out. Are you, you, you sure you don't want the bench that doesn't squeak? Yes, I do want the bench that doesn't squeak. Okay. <laughs> oh, I wanted a squeaky I'm interview. <laughs> Teresa met Marsha back when she was in her early 20s, and they became fast friends and Scrabble partners. Marsha helped her get sober and leave an abusive relationship. She also gave Teresa a job at the underground. So Teresa was around one day when Marsha needed a favor. I was walking toward the underground as she was walking toward my apartment and she met me on the street and she had a giant ring of keys that, I mean, this thing was bigger than bracelets. There were so many keys on it and I don't know how many things she had to unlock that she needed that many keys. But, you know, janitors would have been shamed by the amount of keys she had. And she handed me her big giant key ring and she said, no, I've got some people coming, and I can't be there right now. So I need you to go to the bar, unlock the door. She told me, do not stand on the street, because friends would see me and want in. And um, when these people come, unlock the door, let them in, lock the door immediately back. Don't let anybody in but me. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. If they're hungry, give them something to eat and uh, be very quiet. That's exactly what Teresa did. She went to the bar, let in one woman and two men, as planned, and then Marsha came and met them. But then, a few minutes later, two of Teresa's friends started knocking on the door. Pounding on the door. Going, Teresa, we know you're in there. Come on, let us in. We want a drink and jumping up and down to try to see in the window. And I ne- this is the only time I ever saw an angry look on Marsha's face. And it wasn't really angry, it was more stern. She don't make a sound. Teresa was told that these people were Americans building schools in Nicaragua. Just to zoom out a little bit here, Nicaragua was a big political story in the 1980s, and one that American progressives got very involved with. At the time, the left-wing Sandinistas had overthrown the government. The Sandinistas were named for Augusto Sandino, a revolutionary who led a rebellion against the U.S. occupation of Nicaragua back in the 1920s and 30s. The U.S. wasn't happy about the Sandinistas taking control in the 80s, 
and they started funding a counter-revolutionary group called the Contras. The Contras, you may remember from Episode 5, were also involved in international drug smuggling. But this Nicaragua story from Teresa was very different from the one we heard from Michelle Malat. It seemed to Teresa that these people Marcia was hiding in the bar had been put onto some sort of list that they weren't allowed back in the U.S. because of their work in Nicaragua. So they saw too much. That's why they couldn't come back. (laughs) And so that was the first thing I'd ever heard of a modern underground railroad. And, I mean, to be so brazen as to name the bar Underground Railroad, (laughs) which just, I couldn't believe it. So nobody knew what, who had what, where. If anybody got caught, they didn't have information to give. And all they had with them was like what would go on a hiking, you know, good hiking backpack. And when they left, Marsha looked at me and she said, now, this is my secret, my biggest secret. Nobody knows this. And you can't tell anybody. And I have kept her secret, what little bit of it I knew, for all these years. This story is hard to verify. Marcia was pretty good at keeping secrets. But we did hear different versions of this real underground railroad theory from a couple of people we talked to. Patty Campbell remembered a Nicaragua connection Marcia had which Patty thought was specific to importing drugs. And then we mentioned what we heard from Teresa to Joni Freedom. In her recollection, something related to maybe that Marsha was kind of running an an underground railroad in the Underground Railroad. She was. So I knew that, but I did nothing about Nicaragua. I learned that the people that that were here illegally that she was actually doing like an underground railroad thing, getting them from through the country up into Canada. I also got in touch with an old friend who went to Nicaragua to work with the Sandinistas a lot in the 70s and 80s. I wanted to see if this story about the Americans in Marsh's bar made sense to him. He said his home got bugged and he got harassed at customs when he flew back, but He had never met a U.S. citizen who wasn't allowed back in the country. We believe that Teresa saw what she saw. But as far as the reason Marsha was hiding those people at the underground, we can't be totally sure. Much like Marsha's disappearance, there are lots of different theories about the bar being a station on a real underground railroad. What we don't have is any hard evidence about any of it. When I first heard Teresa's story, it felt like the perfect encapsulation of Marcia as a righteous outlaw, working outside the law, but doing it for the greater good. It's the way I like to remember her. But now, it feels muddy, complicated. The point is, whether it was for her politics or for her drug dealing, Marcia was risking even more than we thought. There was at least one other story that we heard from Michelle Malat that captured her good trouble nature. 
When I heard it, it made me think, that's the Marsha I knew. There was a, whatever they call it, a conference or a time of meeting for the, the Ku Klux Klan. They came in to West Virginia, and they were right outside of Morgantown. They had all set up, and it was all their campers, and they set up a big cross on the road entering the camp, and it was terrifying. Marsha took action. She and Michelle decided to go to the camp where the KKK was meeting. They got there in the evening. It was raining. Marsha and Michelle were wearing slickers, a helpful disguise. They also brought a bunch of thermoses. So we go into this camp, and there's all these children. It's not really raining, you know, it's just drizzly. And there's all these little kids, and they have these three posters set up, target practice posters. One Jewish person with, I'm sorry, what are these called? Payus, Payus. And then one black person with big lips. And then a, a, I don't remember if it was a, a man or a woman to be a homosexual. So it's those three. And they... Little kids have these little guns, and they're doing target practice. And everybody's, it's a party, talking and laughing. It's like a big tailgate party. For Michelle, it was scary and stressful. But she and Marsha were on a mission. And that's when they started serving up the coffee. Marsha did the outside. I went in because I looked like I belonged there, which is very frightening always to me. And I served up coffee to these lovely folks and made sure that the children didn't get any because we warned that they were wasn't good for kids. And I probably said because it had alcohol in it or something like that. Actually, it was laced with LSD. And as the drugs kicked in, another friend tied a rope around the big cross at the entrance to the campground. When Marsha and I got back out, we got in the vehicle and we pulled the cross over as we drove away and then drove like hell. (laughs) So we had left this camp high on LSD without a cross. And that was success. And that was what we did. The heart of this story that has always stuck with Michelle to this day is the mission. Marsha's commitment to doing something, trying to make a difference, it changed Michelle's life. Sometimes I compare now and then that it's not okay to sit on our our hands and be apathetic when there's so much stuff going on. It's not okay to say, but I'm 65 now. I did that then. It's really easy to say, I've been there, done that. Not so. Life continues to go on and folks need to pay attention. And that's, I think, what I admired about Marcia. She helped bring out the best in me. Michelle went on to get a master's in social work and had a very successful career helping people. People mattered. People mattered to her always. Helping people grow. That's what I remember. What if you could see her now? Ah, what would I do? What would you say? Where the hell have you been? 
And what was the road like? I want to hear about the journey. What the heck? What's been going on? And I love you. This project has let us live in Marsha's world again. And much like being around Marsha, talking about her with old and new friends is just fun. I think that's probably why Marsha's memory has kept so many of us connected in so many ways. One is the underground bar Randy saved in his garage, a place where people can come, sit, and be together. After we interviewed him, Randy invited us over there for a drink. We had never seen this space before. Being there made me remember all the things that I loved about Marsha. As we sat at the bar, my daughter Sarah made a tribute to Marsha's memory that captured what we were all feeling. So toast to Marsha and all her complexities and to 33 years and we wouldn't all be here together it was not for her, so there are many wonderful things that she has um, left behind as a legacy, and we are appreciative of that, so a toast to her. In 2013, on what was the 25th anniversary of her disappearance, there was a three-day reunion at 123 Pleasant Street. It was two epic nights of music with some of Marsha's favorite local bands. The reunion was DL's idea. So it was the bunch of us that were 60 and over, and the younger generation who had been the dry house, and then there were still people there that were younger than that, so that we had kind of three generations of people who still had a a bond of just wanting that little world to be the world that we know is possible. It was a fabulous weekend. And to me, coming together and remembering Marsha seems like the way to keep her here, even though she's been gone for so long. There's something I've wanted this podcast to do from the beginning. Give the people who love Marsha a sense of closure. And I'm realizing now that not everyone wants that. Some people want to keep hope alive. There are people who think she's still out there. My mom and I wanted to set up a way of communing with Marsha. Wherever she is, wherever we are. So we set up a voicemail and invited folks to call in and leave a message for her. Hi, Marcia. It's Teresa. Hello, Marcia. This is Todd again. I've been trying to reach you for so long. Hi, Marcia. It's Phyllis. Phyllis, say okay. Hey, Marcia. This is Lisa. I'm leaving this voicemail for you. I, uh, it took a while to be able to do this. I'd rather tell you this in person, but since you're not uh, picking up, I'll leave my message here. I'm missing you more every day as I look at the crazy things that are going on in the world today, and I just know if you were around, you would be right out there helping us to 
fight the bad guys and make this world a better place to live. I just wanted to thank you for all of the things you helped me through. When I first met you, I was just a mess. And you helped put me back together and get me ready to go out in the world. Thank you for the encouragement. Thank you for being my mentor when I was so young and needed one so badly. I'm seeing it now as the time with you was just amazing and, and it definitely colored my entire life. Like the way I live my the way I live my life now is directly, you know, related to knowing you. You were part of the beginning of my life as an activist. You were a model. You were someone I looked up to and you were someone who made me laugh and we had great, great times together. Instead of turning this hole around, it's it's filled just knowing that, you know, it's such a life-changing experience. I miss you. I'd like to give anything to share a cup of coffee with you, like right now, and uh, just kind of see, hey, you planted this seed, you helped plant this seed, and this is what I've become, and I am in turn also trying to plant seeds. I miss you so much and have no idea where you are, but I do know that you are in my heart and you will always be in my heart. I wish we could get together real soon. Talk to you later. Bye. I hope you're doing well. I'm good. Love you. Goodbye. I love you, Marsha Ferber. I just really appreciate you helping me and seeing me and helping me be the woman that I am and just being the radical fucking feminist you were. <sighs> Bye, Marsha. My mom and I aren't ready to say goodbye to Marsha just yet. We started this project thinking about two big mysteries, what happened to Marsha and what happened leading up to Marsha's disappearance. And I think we kind of solved the second one. Marsha was great at putting each of us into our own little boxes. And so it was hard to ever see the full picture of who she was and what she was doing. But now, she's coming to clearer focus for me. There is still that other mystery. What happened to Marsha? Where did she go? I'm not going to lie to you. We don't have that answer yet. But we aren't finished trying to find it. I Was Never There is a Wonder Media Network production. It's hosted by me, Karen Zellermeyer, and my daughter, Jamie, and it's based on our lives. It's produced by Allie Wolner, Lindsay Cradowill, Adesua Agbonile, and Liz Smith. It's edited by Jenny Kaplan and Liz Smith. 
Our executive producers are Jenny Kaplan, Jamie Zellermeyer, and Karen Zellermeyer. Production assistance by Alessandra Tejeda. Our music supervisor is Sarah Tembekchian. The theme music is Take Me Home, Country Roads by John Denver, performed by Brandy Carlisle. And a special shout-out to D.L. Hamilton for always being a willing participant and a collector of all things Marsha. If you're a fan of the show, we'd really appreciate your help in getting the word out. Send the show to a friend and leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to help others discover I Was Never There. 